Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can be found in the show notes. When I describe the show to people, I say, weekly readings of weird fiction, horror, and occasionally sci-fi. This is one of the occasionally sci-fi stories. Sort of. Kinda. Alamagusa. Eric Frank Russell. It was a long time since the bustler had been so silent. She lay in the Syrian spaceport, her tubes cold, her shell particle-scarred, her air that of a long-distance runner exhausted at the end of a marathon. There was good reason for this. She had returned from a lengthy trip by no means devoid of troubles. Now, in port, well-deserved rest had been gained, if only temporarily. Peace. Sweet peace. No more bothers, no more crises, no more major upsets, no more dire predicaments such as such as crop up in free flights at least twice a day. Just peace. Ha! Captain McNaught reposed in his cabin, feet up on deck, and enjoyed the relaxation to the utmost. The engines were dead, their hellish pounding absent for the first time in months. Out there in the big city, four hundred of his crew were making whoopee under a brilliant sun. This evening, when First Officer Gregory returned to take charge, he was going to go into the fragrant twilight and make the rounds of neon-lit civilization. That was the beauty of making landfall at long last. Men could give way to themselves, blow off surplus steam each according to his fashion. No duties, no worries, no dangers, no responsibilities in spaceport. A haven of safety and comfort for tired rovers. Again, ha! Berman, the chief radio officer, entered the cabin. He was one of the half-dozen remaining on duty and bore the expression of a man who can think of twenty better things to do. Relayed signal just come in, sir. Handing the paper across, he waited for the other to look at it and perhaps dictate a reply. Taking the sheet, McNaught removed the feet from his desk, sat erect, and read the message aloud. Terran headquarters to Bustler. Remain, remain sir, report pending further orders. Rear Admiral Vane W. Cassidy do their 17th. Feldman, Navy Op, Command Sirosek. He looked up, all happiness gone from his leathery features, and groaned. Something wrong? asked Berman, vaguely alarmed. McNaught pointed at three thin books on his desk. The middle one, page 20. Leafing through it, Berman found an item that said, Vane W. Cassidy, Rear Admiral, Head Inspector, Ships and Stores. Berman swallowed hard. Does that mean... Yes, it does, said McNaught without pleasure. Back to training college and all its rigmarole, paint and soap, spit and polish. He put on an officious expression, adopted a voice to match it. Captain, you have only 799 emergency rations. Your allocation is 800. Nothing in your logbook accounts for the missing one. Where is it? What happened to it? How is it that one of the men's kit lacks an officially issued pair of suspenders? Did you report his loss? Why does he pick on us? Asked Berman, appalled. He's never chivied us before. That's why, informed McNaught, scowling at the wall. It's our turn to be stretched across the barrel. His gaze found the calendar. We have three days, and we'll need them. Tell Second Officer Pike to come here at once. Berman departed gloomily. 
In short time, Pike entered. His face reaffirmed the old adage that bad news travels fast. "'Make out an indent,' ordered McNaught, "'for one hundred gallons of plastic paint, navy grey, approved quality. "'Make out another for thirty gallons of interior white enamel. "'Take them to spaceport stores right away. "'Tell them to deliver by six this evening, "'along with our correct issue of brushes and sprayers. "'Grab up any cleaning material that's going for free.' "'The men won't like this,' remarked Pike feebly. Oh, "'They're going to love it,' McNaught asserted. "'A bright and shiny ship all spick and span is good for morale. "'It says so in that book.' Get moving and put those indents in. When you come back, find the stores and equipment sheets and bring them here. We've got to check stocks before Cassidy arrives. Once he's here, we'll have no chance to make up shortages or smuggle out any extra items we happen to find in our hands. Very well, sir. Pike went out, wearing the same expression as Berman's. Lying back in his chair, McNaught muttered to himself. There was a feeling in his bones that something was sure to cause a last-minute ruckus. A shortage of any item would be serious enough unless covered by a previous report. A surplus would be bad. Very bad. The former implied carelessness or misfortune. The latter suggested barefaced theft of government property in circumstances condoned by the commander. For instance, there was that recent case of Williams of the heavy cruiser Swift. He'd heard of it over the space vine when out around Boates. Williams had been found in unwitting command of 11 reels of electric fence wire when his official issue was 10. It had taken a court-martial to decide that the extra reel, which had formidable barter value on a certain planet, had not been stolen from space stores or, in sailor jargon, teleported aboard, but Williams had been reprimanded, and that did not help promotion. He was still rumbling discontentedly when Pike returned bearing a folder of foolscap sheets. "'Going to start right away, sir?' We'll have to. He heaved himself erect, mentally bid goodbye to time off and a taste of the bright lights. It'll take long enough to work right through from bow to tail. I'll leave the men's kit inspection to the last. Marching out of the cabin, he set forth toward the bow, Pike following with broody reluctance. As they passed the open main lock, Peaslake observed them, bounded eagerly up the gangway and joined behind. A puka member of the crew, he was a large dog whose ancestors had been more enthusiastic than selective. He wore with pride a big collar inscribed Peaslake, property of S.S. Butler. His chief duties, ably performed, were to keep alien rodents off the ship and, on rare occasions, smell out dangers not visible to human eyes. The three paraded forward, McNaught and Pike in the manner of men grimly sacrificing pleasure for the sake of duty, Peaslake with the panting willingness of one ready for any new game, no matter what. Reaching the bow cabin, McNaught dumped himself in the pilot's seat, took the folder from the other. You know this stuff better than me. The chart room is where I shine, so I'll read them out while you look them over. He opened the folder, started on the first page. K1, beam compass, type D, one of. Check, said Pike. K2, distance and direction indicator electronic, type JJ, one of. Check. K3, port and starboard gravitic meters, Cassini models, one pair. Check. Peaslake planted his head in McNaught's lap, blinked soulfully, and whined. He was beginning to get the other's viewpoint. This tedious itemizing and checking was a hell of a game. McNaught consolingly lowered a hand and played with Peaslake's ears while he plowed his way down the list. K187, foam rubber cushions, pilot and co-pilot, one pair. Check. By the time First Officer Gregory appeared, they had reached the tiny intercom cubby and poked around it in semi-darkness. P. 
Peaslake had long departed in disgust. M24, spare mini speakers, 3-inch Type T2, one set of six. Check. Looking in, Gregory popped his eyes and said, What's going on? Major inspection due soon. McNaught glanced at his watch. Go see if Stores has delivered a load, and if not, why not? Then you'd better give me a hand and let Pike take a few hours off. Does this mean land leave is cancelled? You bet it does. Until after his honor has been... You bet it does. Until after his honor has been and gone. He glanced at Pike. When you get into the city, search around and send back any of the crew you can find. No arguments or excuses. Also, no alibis and or delays. It's an order. Pike registered unhappiness. Gregory glowered at him, went away, came back, and said, Stores will leave the stuff here in twenty minutes' time. With bad grace, he watched Pike depart. M-47, intercom cable, woven wire protected, three drums. Check, said Gregory, mentally kicking himself for returning at the wrong time. The task continued until late in the evening, was resumed early the next morning. By that time, three-quarters of the men were hard at work inside and outside the vessel, doing their jobs as though sentenced to them for crimes contemplated but not yet committed. Moving around the ship's corridors and catwalks had to be done crab fashion with a nervous sideways edging. Once again, it was being demonstrated that the Terran life form suffers from ye fear of wetty paint. The first smearer would have ten years willed off his unfortunate life. It was in these conditions, in mid-afternoon of the second day, that McNaught's bones proved their feelings had been prophetic. He recited the ninth page, while Jean Blanchard confirmed the presence and actual existence of all items enumerated. Two-thirds of the way down, they hit the rocks, metaphorically speaking, and commenced to sink fast. McNaught said boredly, V-1097, drinking bowl enamel one of. Is this, said Blanchard, tapping it, V-1098, Ophog-1. Qua? asked Blanchard, staring. V-1098, Ophog-1, repeated McNaught. But why are you looking thunderstruck? This is the ship's galley. You're the head cook. You know it's supposed to be in the galley, don't you? Where's this Ophog? Never hear of him, stated Blanchard flatly. You must have. It's on this equipment sheet in plain clear type. Ophog-1, it says. It was here when we were fitted out four years ago. We checked it ourselves and signed for it. I signed for nothings called Ofog, Blanchard denied. In the cuisine there is no such thing. Look, McNaught scowled and showed him the sheet. Blanchard looked and smiled disdainfully. I have here the electronic oven, one of. I have jacketed boilers, graduated capacities, one set. I have bain-marie pan, six of, but no Ofog. Never heard of him. I do not know of him. He spread his arms and shrugged. No Ofog. Well, that's got to be, McNaught insisted. What's more, when Cassidy arrives, there'll be hell to pay if there isn't. You find him, Blanchard suggested. You got a certificate from the International... You got a certificate from the International Hotel's School of Cookery. You got a certificate from the Cordon Bleu College of Cuisine. You got a certificate with three credits from the Space Navy Feeding Center, McNaught pointed out. All that, and you don't know what an offog is. Nom de chien, ejaculated Blanchard, waving his arms around. I tell you, ten thousand times there is no offog. There never was an offog. Escoffier himself could not find the offog of which there is none. Am I a musician, perhaps? It's part of the culinary equipment, McNaught maintained. It must be because it's on page nine, and page nine means its proper home is in the galley, care of the head cook. Like hell it does, Blanchard retorted. He pointed at a metal box on the wall. Intercom booster. Is that mine? 
McNutt thought it over, conceded. No, it's Berman's. His stuff rambles all over the ship. Then ask him for this bloody offog, said Blanchard triumphantly. I will. If it's not yours, it must be his. Let's finish this checking first. If I'm not systematic and thorough, Cassidy will jerk off my insignia. His eyes sought the list. V-1099, inscribed collar, leather brass studded, dog, for the use of. No need to look for that. I saw it myself five minutes ago. He ticketed the item, continued, V-1100, sleeping basket, woven reed, one of. Is this, said Blanchard, kicking it into a corner. V-1101, cushion, foam rubber, to fit sleeping basket, one of. Half of, Blanchard contradicted. In four years, he has chewed away other half. Maybe Cassidy will let us indent for a new one. It doesn't matter. We're okay so long as we can produce the half we've got. McNutt stood up, closed the folder. That's the lot for here. I'll go see Berman about this missing item. The inventory party moved on. Berman switched off a UHF receiver, removed his earplugs, and raised a questioning eyebrow. In the galley, we're short an offog, explained McNutt. Where is it? Why ask me? Galley's Blanchard's bailiwick. Not entirely. A lot of your cables run through it. You've two terminal boxes in there, also an automatic switch and an intercom booster. Where's the offog? <laughs> Never heard of it, said Berman, baffled. McNutt shouted, Don't tell me that. I'm already fed up hearing Blanchard saying it. Four years back, we had an offog. It says so here. This is our copy of what we checked and signed for. It says we signed for an offog. Therefore, we must have one. It's got to be found before Cassidy gets here. Sorry, sir, sympathized Berman. Can't help you. You can think again, advised McNaught. Up in the bow, there's a direction and distance indicator. What do you call it? A didn't, said Berman, mystified. And, McNaught went on, pointing at the pulse transmitter, what do you call that? The opera popper? Baby names, see? Didn't and opera popper. Now rack your brains and remember what you called an offog four years ago. Nothing, asserted Berman, has ever been called an offog to my knowledge. Then, demanded McNaught, why did we sign for one? I didn't sign for anything. You did all the signing. While you and the others did the checking. Four years ago, presumably in the galley, I said Offog one, and either you or Blanchard pointed to it and said, check. I took somebody's word for it. I have to take other specialists' word for it. I am an expert navigator familiar with all the latest navigational gadgets, but not with other stuff, so I'm compelled to rely on people who know what an Offog is, or ought to. Berman had a bright thought. All kinds of oddments were dumped in the main lock, the corridors and the galley when we were fitted out. We had to sort through a deal of stuff and stash it where it properly belonged, remember? This offog thing might be any place today. It isn't necessarily my responsibility or Blanchard's. I'll see what the other officers say. Agreed, McNaught, conceding the point. Gregory, Worth, Sanderson, or one of the others may be coddling the item. Whatever it is, it's got to be found, or accounted for in full if it's been expended. He went out. Berman pulled a face, inserted his earplugs, resumed fiddling with his apparatus. An hour later, McNaught came back wearing a scowl. Positively, he answered with ire, there is no such thing on the ship. Nobody knows of it. Nobody can so much guess at it. Cross it off and report it lost, Berman suggested. What, when we're hard aground? You know as well as I do that loss and damage must be signaled at time of occurrence. If I tell Cassidy that Offog went west in space, he'll want to know when, where, how, and why it wasn't signaled. There'll be a real ruckus if the contraption happens to be valued at half a million credits. I can't dismiss it with an airy wave of the hand. What's the answer, then? inquired Berman, innocently ambling straight into the trap. There's one and only one, 
McNaught announced. You will manufacture an Allfog. Who, me? said Berman, twitching his scalp. You and no other. I'm fairly sure the thing is your pigeon anyway. Why? Because it's typical of the baby names used for your kind of stuff. I'll bet a month's pay that an Allfog is some sort of scientific Alamagusa. Something to do with fog, perhaps. Maybe a blind approach gadget. Well, the blind approach transceiver is called the Fumbly, Berman informed. Well, there you are, said McNaught, as if that clinched it. So you will make an Allfog. It'll be completed by six tomorrow morning and ready for my inspection then. It had better be convincing. In fact, pleasing. In fact, its function will be convincing. Berman stood up, let his hands dangle, and said in hoarse tones, well, How can I make an Allfog when I don't even know what it is? Neither does Cassidy know. McNaught pointed out, leering at him. He's more of a quantity surveyor than anything else. As such, he counts things, looks at things, certifies that they exist, accepts advice on whether they are functionally satisfactory or worn out. All we need do is concoct an imposing Alamagusa and tell him it's the Offog. Holy Moses, said Berman fervently. Let us not rely on the dubious assistance of biblical characters, McNaught reproved. Let us use the brains that God has given us. Get a grip on your soldering iron and make a top-notch offog by six tomorrow evening. That's an order. He departed, satisfied with this solution. Behind him, Berman gloomed at the wall and licked his lips once, twice. Rear Admiral Vane W. Cassidy arrived right on time. He was a short, paunchy character with a florid complexion and eyes like those of a long-dead fish. His gait was an important strut. Ah, oh, Captain... I trust that you have everything shipshape. Everything usually is, assured McNaught. I see to that. He spoke with conviction. Good, approved Cassidy. I like a commander who takes his responsibilities seriously. Much as I regret saying so, there are a few who do not. He marched through the main lock, his cod eyes taking note of the fresh white enamel. Where do you prefer to start, bow or tail? My equipment sheets run from bow backwards. We may as well deal with them the way they're set. Very well. He trotted officiously toward the nose, paused on the way to Pat Peaslake and examine his collar. Well cared for, I see. Has the animal proved useful? He saved five lives on Merida by barking a warning. The details have been entered in your log, I suppose? Yes, sir. The log is in the charter room awaiting your inspection. We'll get to it in due time. Reaching the bow cabin, Cassidy took a seat, accepted the folder from McNaught, started off at a business-like pace. K-1, beam compass, type D, one of. This is it, sir, said McNaught, showing him. Still working properly? Yes, sir. They carried on, reached the intercom cubby, the computer room, a succession of other places, back to the galley. Here, Blanchard posed in freshly laundered white clothes and eyed the newcomer warily. V-147, electric oven, one of. Is this, said Blanchard, pointing with disdain. Satisfactory, inquired Cassidy, giving him the fishy eye. Not big enough, declared Blanchard. He encompassed the entire gallery with an expressive gesture. Nothing's big enough. Place too small. Everything's too small. I am chef de cuisine, and she is a cuisine like an attic. This is a warship, not a luxury liner, Cassidy snapped. He frowned at the equipment sheet. V-148, timing device, electronic oven, attachment thereto, one of. Is this... Splat Blanchard, ready to sling it through the nearest port, if Cassidy would first donate the two pins. Working his way down the sheet, Cassidy got nearer and nearer while nervous tension built up. Then he reached the critical point and said, V-1098, Offog-1. 
Morbleu, said Blanchard, shooting sparks from his eyes. I have said before, and I say again, there never was the Allfog is in the radio room, sir. McNaught chipped in hurriedly. Indeed. Cassidy took another look at the sheet. Then why is it recorded along with the galley equipment? It was placed in the galley at time of fitting out, sir. It's one of those portable instruments left to us to fix up where most suitable. Hmm. Well, then it should have been transferred to the radio room list. Why didn't you transfer it? I thought it better to wait for your authority to do so, sir. The fish eyes registered gratification. Yes, that is quite proper of you, Captain. I will transfer it now. He crossed the item from sheet 9, initialed it, entered it on sheet 16, initialed that. V1099, inscribed collar, leather... Oh, yes, I've seen that. The dog was wearing it. He ticked it. An hour later, he strutted into the radio room. Berman stood up, squared his shoulders, but could not keep his hands or feet from fidgeting. His eyes protruded slightly and kept straying toward McNaught in silent appeal. He was like a man wearing a porcupine in his breeches. V1098, Offog 1, said Cassidy in his usual tone of brooking no nonsense. Moving with the jerkiness of a slightly uncoordinated robot, Berman pawed a small box fronted with dials, switches, and colored lights. It looked like a radio ham's idea of a fruit machine. He knocked down a couple of switches. The lights came on, played around in intriguing combinations. This is it, sir, he informed with difficulty. Ah, Cassidy left his chair and moved across for a closer look. I don't recall having seen this item before, but there are so many different models of the same things. Is it still operating efficiently? Yes, sir. It's one of the most useful things in the ship, contributed McNaught for good measure. What does it do? inquired Cassidy, inviting Berman to cast a pearl of wisdom before him. Berman paled. Hastily, McNaught said, a full explanation would be rather involved and technical, but to put it as simply as possible, it enables us to strike a balance between opposing gravitational fields. Variations in lights indicate the extent and degree of unbalance at any given time. It's a clever idea, added Berman, made suddenly reckless by this news, based on Finagle's constant. I see, said Cassidy, not seeing at all. He resumed his seat, ticked the offog, and carried on. Z44, switchboard, automatic, 40-line intercom, one of. Here it is, sir. Cassidy glanced at it, returned his gaze to the sheet. The others used his momentary distraction to mop perspiration from their foreheads. Victory had been gained. All was well. For the third time. Ha! Rear Admiral Vane W. Cassidy departed, pleased and complimentary. Within one hour, the crew bolted to town. McNaught took turns with Gregory at enjoying the gay lights. For the next five days, all was peace and pleasure. On the sixth day, Berman brought in a signal, dumped it upon McNaught's desk, and waited for the reaction. He had an air of gratification, the pleasure of one whose virtue is about to be rewarded. Terran headquarters to Buslo. Return here immediately for overhauling and refitting. Improved power plant to be installed... Feldman, Navy Op Command, Sirasek. Back to Terra, commented McNaught happily, and an overhaul will mean at least one month's leave. He eyed Berman. Tell all officers on duty to go to town at once and order the crew aboard. The men will come running when they know why. Yes, sir, said Berman, grinning. 
Everyone was still grinning two weeks later when the Syroport had receded far behind and Sol had grown to a vague speck in the sparkling mist of the bow starfield. Eleven weeks still to go, but it was worth it. Back to Terra. Hurrah. In the captain's cabin, the grins abruptly vanished one evening when Berman suddenly developed the willies. He marched in, chewed his bottom lip while waiting for McNaught to finish writing in the log. Finally, McNaught pushed the book away, glanced up, frowned. What's the matter with you? Got a bellyache or something? No, sir, I've been thinking. Does it hurt that much? I've been thinking, persisted Berman in funereal tones. We're going back for overhaul. You know what that means? We'll walk off the ship and a horde of experts will walk into it. He stared tragically at the other. Experts, I said. Naturally, they'll be experts, McNaught agreed. Equipment cannot be tested and brought up to scratch by a bunch of dopes. We'll require more than a mere expert to bring the offog up to scratch, Berman pointed out. We'll need genius. McNaught rocked back, swapped expressions like changing masks. Jumping Judas, I'd forgotten all about that thing. When we get to Terra, we won't blind those boys. When we get to Terra, we won't blind those boys with science. No, sir, we won't, endorsed Berman. He did not add any more, but his face shouted aloud, You got me into this, you get me out of it. He waited a time while McNaught did some intense thinking, then prompted, What do you suggest, sir? Slowly, the satisfied smile returned to McNaught's features as he answered, Break up the contraption and feed it into the disintegrator. Well, that doesn't solve the problem, said Berman. We'll still be short and off, Og. No, we won't, because I'm going to signal its loss owing to the hazards of space service. He closed one eye in an emphatic wink. We're in free flight right now. He reached for a message pad and scribbled on it, while Berman stood by, vastly relieved. Bustler, to Terran headquarters, item V1098, Offhog 1, came apart under gravitational stress while passing through twin sunfield Hector Major Minor. Material used as fuel. McNaught, Commander, Bustler. Berman took it to the radio room and beamed it earthward. All was peace and progress for another two days. The next time he went to the captain's cabin, he went running and worried. General call, sir, he announced breathlessly and thrust the message into the other's hands. Terran headquarters for relay. All sectors urgent and important. All ships grounded forthwith. Vessels in flight under official orders will make for nearest spaceport pending further instructions. Welling. Alarm and Rescue Command. Terra. Something's gone bust, commented McNaught, undisturbed. He traipsed to the chart room, Berman following. Consulting the charts, he dialed the intercom phone, got Pike in the bow, and ordered, There's a panic. All ships grounded. We've got to make for Zaxted port about three days run away. Change course at once. Starboard 17 degrees, declination 10. Then he cut off, griped, Bang goes that sweet month on Terra. I never did like Zaxted either. It stinks. The crew will feel murderous about this, and I don't blame them. What do you think has happened, sir? asked Berman. He looked both uneasy and annoyed. Heaven alone knows. The last general call was seven years ago when the Star Rider exploded halfway along the Mars run. They grounded every ship in existence while they investigated the cause. He rubbed his chin, pondered, went on. And the call before that one was when the entire crew of the blowgun went nuts. Whatever it is this time, you can bet it's serious. It wouldn't be the start of a space war. Against whom? McNaught made a gesture of contempt. Nobody has the ships with which to oppose us. No, it's something technical. We'll learn of it eventually. 
They'll tell us before we reach Zaxted or soon afterward. They did tell him. Within six hours, Berman rushed in with face full of horror. What's eating you now? demanded McNaught, staring at him. The... 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 the offog, stuttered Berman. He made motions as though brushing off invisible spiders. What of it? It's a typographical error. In your copy it should read, Off. Dot. Dog. The commander stared owlishly. Off. Dot. Dog, echoed McNaught, making it sound like foul language. See for yourself. Dumping the signal on the desk, Berman bolted out, left the door swinging. McNaught scowled after him, picked up the message. Terran headquarters to Bustler. Your report, V-1098, ship's official dog, Peaslake. Detail fully circumstances and manner in which animal came apart under gravitational stress. Cross-examine crew and signal all coincidental symptoms experienced by them. Urgent and important. Welling. Alarm and Rescue Command, Terra. In the privacy of his cabin, McNaught commenced to eat his nails. Every now and again, he went a little cross-eyed as he examined them for nearness to the flesh. And that is the end of the story. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to support me on Patreon. The Patreon payments recently went toward offsetting the cost of getting my computer repaired. Okay, let me just rant about that for a moment. Apple, in their infinite wisdom, decided, oh, hey, if we put all the components into one place and weld them all together, then when someone needs a battery replaced, they have to get the whole thing replaced, so it won't be a $150 repair, it'll be a $550 repair, and we'll make more money. Yay, capitalism! Labor on top of that, the cost came out to 870 real American dollars. When I got my computer back, I went to YouTube and I searched for replace top case on 2017 13-inch MacBook Pro. I found a 36-minute long video shown in real time of how to do it. There are about 30 teeny tiny screws to take out, three wires to disconnect, and that's it. You do all that, you reconnect the motherboard to the new top case, put all the screws back, and you're done. 100% I could have done that myself. Buy the screwdriver set off of Amazon, eight bucks. Buy a top case from somewhere, 350 bucks. Fixing a thing yourself because fuck capitalism, priceless. Public service announcement to everyone listening. If you have something expensive you need fixed, go to YouTube, do a search for it. Chances are there is someone on there who will show you how to do it. It's how I learned to change brakes and spark plugs and a multifunction switch. I could change my alternator if I needed to. I could replace the top case on my computer. And it will save you a ton of money because you don't have to pay the labor costs. Anyway, thank you to all my patrons for your support and for helping to pay the cost of repairing my computer so I can keep doing the show. It is much appreciated. My wife and soon-to-be-born daughter, thank you as well. Please go and get vaccinated for anything and everything you are available for. If you see a racist out and about and doing a racism, punch them in the face. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Special thanks to all my patrons, Dave Baxter, Robert Biddle, A. Smith, Billy, J.R., Michaela, Lauren Maines, John McDonough, David Ricker, Amber Vale, Steve Meyer, Andrew Buchanan, Samantha Hickey, Maylin, Marco Van Putin, Ineptus Astartes, Matthias Hansen, and Eric Braun. Thank you and all my patrons so much for your support. It is what allows me to keep doing my stupid little show, which I very much enjoy doing. Thank you. <laughs>